A community is like a family, isn't it? A community is like a family. And um, you can't pick and choose the things that happen in your family. And you can't pick and choose the things that happen in your community. So you either take it all or you're not part of the family. And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're taking it all. It's hard to even process the fact that, that I and we are not going to see Lenny again. It just, I think I'm, I must be still really in denial because I can't get my arms around that. I've known Lenny for seven or eight years and he's just been such an integral part of my life and our community's life and the life of our treatment center and all the work that we do. And he's just part of the fabric of this place. And so a loss like that is not going to go away anytime soon. And a loss like that is too big to be able to get our minds and our hearts all around it at any one time. It's going to come in little bits and pieces. And I think especially the family here and Sharon and all of us are going to find ourselves kind of going in cycles, you know, where we, we, we sink down into grief and then we come back out. And it's just going to take time. And things are going to remind us of him and bring us right back to those emotional memories. And that's exactly as it should be. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be a family. And that's what it means to be in deep relationship. I'm so glad you all came here. You know, this is Jean on the end, Lenny's mother. And this is Paul, his brother, and Cindy and Kathy, his two sisters. And we got Doug on the end. Now, here's the most amazing thing. Doug walked in, and I'm taking him to meet the family. And he and Kathy get these. They work together at Alcon and have worked together for years and had no idea that they had Lenny as a connection between them. It's just absolutely astounding, the connections that we have and the connections that we make. You know? And, of course, Sharon, his longtime girlfriend, significant other, is there as well. And so you know, our hearts go out to you. At times like this, the only thing that we can do is turn our attention back to the living. Because Lenny is fine. Lenny is all right. And we're going to talk more about that. But now it's about us. How do we move on? How do we come full circle? And how do we begin to accept the kind of loss that we had this last week? And you know, it's this much harder because Lenny took his own life. And that's a delicate subject, and sometimes we really dance around it in church, but I don't want to do that this morning. You know, I don't want to add to anyone's grief, but I don't want to dance around because these issues are the core issues of life. This is what it's all about. How do you absorb all of that? You know, how do you take all this in? It's just too big. It's just too much. And so I want to just spend some time and talk about some of these things that are, that are going on. You know, I remember, it was just last Wednesday, I was prepping for the Bible, the book study that we do on Wednesday nights. And I get a phone call, and normally I wouldn't have answered the call because I'm prepping and I'm working, and it was already about 5.15, and so I didn't have much time before I needed to go over. But I looked at the phone, and it was a man that I haven't talked to in a long time, and I completely forgot that he was Lenny's sponsor. But because it was so odd that he would call me at all, I picked up the phone and he gave me this news. And I remember I understood the words, but they weren't connecting. They, didn't have, they weren't making any sense to me. And that's that bigness that I'm talking about. You know, that's that, I suppose, a denial mechanism that sets in 
But maybe it's a defense mechanism because news that is so big, so devastating, we just have to take in pieces. And I was listening to him and he was talking to me and he gave me the news and the first and, or the next thought that was in my head was Sharon because the next meeting that I was going to was our Al-Anon meeting that we have over here and I knew Sharon would be there. And the next thought as I looked at my notes and everything I was preparing was just like, how stupid is this? You know, how pointless is this? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you get a, uh, something like that and everything that seems so important just a second ago now just seems like nothing. Well, it's not nothing. But I think what a death is, and especially a death like this, is a reminder of, is that all the doings, all the things that we do have no intrinsic meaning in and of themselves. They only exist to serve the relationships that we're in. Now they have meaning. And so this thing that I do, these things that you do, as you see them connected to living and breathing flesh and blood relationships, they have intense meaning. But sometimes we get all wrapped up in the things that we're doing and we forget to see the connection points and see how they actually relate. And then they become meaningless. And I just had to put everything away, put it all down, and I went looking for Sharon. And just as I went to the front, she came around, and there she was. And it was obvious that she had no idea what was going on. And so uh, I just greeted her, and she went into the Al-Anon room. And then I had a short huddle with Frank and Dave and a couple of others. And we were trying to figure out, you know, what's the best thing to do. But I walked in and pulled her out of the Al-Anon meeting and took her into our other group room. And then I had to be the one giving her that too big news to handle. And I watched her go through what she went through because she couldn't accept it at first. How does anyone accept it? And she wanted to go to Lenny's house and the coroner was still there. And I watched her call Kathy and I watched Sharon then give Kathy the news and I could only imagine what Kathy was going through at that moment and what she was thinking and and not comprehending and feeling. And then Kathy told the rest of her family and the ripples go out and the ripples go out further and further and all of us have to deal with this. The next morning, we told our clients who loved Lenny so much. He had been such an integral part of their recovery in their lives. And I watched their reactions. You know, We can't absorb this all at once. It's going to take time. But the beautiful thing is, is that there is real grief here, which means there was real relationship here. And that's what this is all about. And there's another aspect of this. Do you remember the old John Donne poem? You know, every man's death diminishes me. Therefore, never ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The whole point of that poem is that no man is an island. That was the actual name of it. We're all connected. We're all interconnected. We're interdependent. Not codependent. We're interdependent. We're connected to each other. And when one of us falls, it's a reminder of how close each one of us is to falling. When one of us dies, it's a reminder that death is always imminent. It's always right here. It could be right now. It could be today. This morning we woke up could be the last sunrise that we see. Life is like that. It carries that kind of immediacy. But it shouldn't be a dread. Just an immediacy. But it reminds us of that. And it scares us. And it adds to the grief And as we realize that we're scared for ourselves, then it disconnects us from others and then we feel guilty. I mean, there's all these things that happen. It's such a complex mix when we get thrown with traumatic news like this was. 
And so this particular death, this particular week that we've been going through is so hard, I think, for me personally, and I'm sure for all of us, because of who Lenny was. Lenny missed his calling. I've told him this since I met him. He should have been a stand-up comic. And you all know this about him, right? He could just look at you and make you start laughing. But his wit, his mind, the quickness of him, when he was in a group setting or just in a conversation, the way his mind worked and the, the, <laughs> the replies that he would come back with were just so amazing because they were so unexpected, especially with that dry delivery that he would give it, you know? And these things would come out and you just couldn't help laughing. And he was so self-deprecating. He was always just talking himself down in, in such an endearing way. It's just hard to imagine that he got pushed to a point where he thought that this was the only thing that he could do in his life. So because who Lenny was makes it so much more difficult for us to accept this, to get our minds around it. And it keeps us wondering in all the normal human ways, you know, if I had said this, if I had said that, if I had done this or done that. And we go through the catalog of the last times we talked or the times maybe we missed talking. And we think maybe there was something I could do can't help doing that. It's a human thing to do. And with Lenny, we just can't make sense of this whole thing. You know, I found this little quote from Robin Williams, and I have it down at the bottom of the the bulletins, and I just thought it was so interesting, given Robin Williams. He says, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless, and they don't want anyone else to feel that way. Is that true? I don't know. I don't know if it's true. You know? But Lenny did let me see his dark side. Over the years, I got to counsel with him formally, and we had lots of informal conversations. He let me in on certain things, and obviously not on others. But I know that he had the depression. I know that he had the things that he was constantly dealing with. I know the, addi- the addictions continued to haunt him. But that's not the Lenny that we saw day by day. The Lenny we saw day by day was so affirming of life. And that is the question that keeps moving back and forth. You know? Lenny could just walk into the room and I would start smiling. Every time I knew that Lenny was in a group, I knew that it was going to be a good group. You know, he just elevated everything with his presence and with the things that I knew he was going to say. You know? I think it's possible that Lenny was the most universally loved person that I know. You met Lenny after 10 minutes and you loved him. There was just something about him that just drew him in. I was talking to Sharon a couple of nights ago and she said that Lenny was swimming in a sea of love, but he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. He didn't see himself the way that we saw him. He didn't realize what he brought wasn't something that could be taught. It didn't come out of a school degree program. It was just intrinsic to who he was. It was part and parcel to the way that he went through life and the way he saw things and the way he communicated them. There are three images that I put on the bulletins. I hope you all have bulletins in front of you. The inside images are two different Lenny's, and I love the big image because that's Lenny at Lowe's apparently one day when he decided to put a box on his head. You know? And look at his face. Look at that expression. That is the perfect Lenny expression when he just cracked the best joke ever. You know, and he's just got that deadpan look. You know? And then there's Lenny all cleaned up, just himself. 
I love the, the, the juxtaposition of those two images because it so perfectly showed the two sides that Lenny had. And then if you turn and look at the cover, this is an image that my senior pastor, when I first came back to Christianity um, 25, 28 years ago, he had a, a reproduction of this hanging on his study wall in his home. And when I'd go in to counsel with him, that would be the thing that I'd be staring at, you know, over his shoulder and above. And it always struck me as such a, an interesting image and such an evocative image. And I see it right now as representative you know, of Lenny just being held now at the end of all these struggles, at the end of all this pain, to just be held. And if you notice, the man there is holding a, a hammer and a spike. And so he was one of the, it's apparently one of the ones who crucified, but it's symbolic of all the things that went wrong in his life, all the things that he went sideways on in his life, and how it just doesn't matter when he meets Jesus the event is always the same. It's just an embrace. It's just a connection. Sometimes I've heard people say that when you stand before God, you know, your life is going to play back like a movie and you're going to see all the terrible things you did and you're going to be so ashamed. Are you kidding me? You are standing in the presence of perfect love, perfect connection, perfect unity. What do you think you're going to feel? Perfect connection, perfect unity, perfect peace, perfect love. Of course. This is where Lenny is right now. To the bottom of my heart, down to my socks, I know this about Lenny. And that's why I love this image right now and thinking about him. Finally, finding the connection, finding the absolute acceptance that seemed to be eluding him through his life. Lenny's death also brings up three questions that I want to talk about this morning. And the first question, how could someone like Lenny get to this point? What pushed him? How could it even happen? You know, it's the same question that I was asking myself about two and a half years ago when Jeff Jones committed suicide. You know, he was one of our founders. He was one of my closest friends. And we didn't see it coming. We knew that he was off, but we didn't know how bad it was. And when he intentionally took that overdose, it just threw us into the same kind of, of just disorientation and grief and trauma. And at his memorial service, the officiant was Chuck Smith Jr. And I just thought that was perfect because Chuck had known Jeff for most of his life, I think, for years and years and years. But more importantly, Chuck Smith Jr. suffers from chronic depression. He understood what depression was. He knew it from the inside out. And he wasn't afraid to talk about it at that memorial service. He wasn't afraid to give it voice. But what he said was first that even though he understood the depression and he understood what Jeff was going through, he was still really angry at him. Because he made Jeff promise that he wouldn't do anything to harm himself unless he called him first. But he didn't call. But then he, Chuck turned around and said, but I wouldn't have either, you know? Because if Jeff had called, he knew exactly what Chuck was going to say. If Lenny had called me or Frank or any of his family or Sharon, he knew exactly what they were going to say and he didn't want to hear it. All he wanted was for the hurting to stop. That's what he wanted. I suffer from chronic depression. I understand it from the inside out as well. 
for 20-some years, actually as early as eighth grade, I can remember feeling that something wasn't right. And by the time I got to high school, it was really pronounced. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't give it any words. You know, back then in the early 70s, psychiatry wasn't as posh as it is today and wasn't as big a deal. You know, there was no help. There was really no thinking. And I made my first suicide attempt when I was in a senior in high school. It was a sort of a half-hearted one as I look back on it now, but it was one. And it got worse and worse and worse until my early 30s. I was constantly, constantly thinking about suicide. You know, depression is something that if you don't feel it, if you don't know it, especially on a chronic basis, it's so impossible to understand. It's like a normie trying to understand the alcoholic mind, the addict mind. It's the same thing. If you're outside of it, if you haven't had the experience, you don't know how all-encompassing it is. I don't know how many times I heard people say, just snap out of it, you know? Anyone of you who are depressed and someone tells you to snap out of it, you have my permission to slap them right across the face. Don't you think if I knew where the light switch was to snap, I would snap it? You know, it's like being in this dark place and there you just don't know where it is. In fact, you're not even really sure that there's anything wrong with you. People told me through my early adult years that I should see a psychiatrist eventually and get some meds. And I said, no, I'm just a dark person. I didn't understand. I wrote a few just thoughts down about what depression feels like because I think it's important for those of you who haven't experienced it to, to kind of get a sense of it. This chronic depression contains the sense that you'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'll never do enough. I'll never be good-looking enough, talented enough, smart enough. I'll never be able to perform well enough. I don't really matter. Life is pointless. Life has no meaning. And because of all those feelings, you work feverishly to try to prove yourself, to try to do something, to try to measure up to standards that aren't really even clearly defined, but you just know that you're not meeting them. You know? And then you question every accomplishment and every milestone that you achieve and you second guess it. And then you compare it to other people's accomplishments and milestones and you always come out second best. You always come out somewhere down the ladder. And so you can never ever get over that hump. You feel hopeless that anything will really ever change, ever get better. And if it does, it's only temporary because you know it's going to go right back again. And then the blinding fatigue sets in the tightness in the chest, the insomnia, the irritability, and then the guilt of your irritability and how you realize you're taking it out on other people and hurting other people because of what you're feeling, but you can't help what you're feeling. There's an inability to celebrate other people's accomplishments and joyful times because you just feel envious because you can't feel that. You can't just throw yourself into these times and really be happy and be there for another person. Eventually you feel like you just can't take another step. You feel that people would be better off without you. And then the suicide fantasies begin because you just want it all to stop. You know? It's like after a while, it's like a black hole that just closes over yourself and nothing can escape, not even light. It just becomes the only reality that there really is. And nobody can tell you anything to change any of this. There are no words, there's nothing you can get out of a book that changes the basic reality that you feel. The only way out, the only way through, 
is always a spiritual journey. It's always experiential. It's not intellectual. We here in the West, we want to figure it out. We want the executive summary. We want the schematic. We want to just figure it out, know exactly what to do. And it doesn't work that way. Addiction doesn't work that way. Depression doesn't work that way. Guess what? Life doesn't work that way. It's an experiential journey. It's taking a trip that the byproduct of which, not the point of which, the byproduct of which is to learn something about the dynamics of life, to learn something about the difference between doing and being, and find out what is really the most important thing, which are these relationships that give everything else meaning. And for me, it was that spiritual journey that finally started to give me a sense of another there out there that I'd never experienced or never lived before. And it's always spiritual. Now, it takes other forms. It can take other shapes. It can look like a recovery journey. It can look like creative pursuit. It can be sports. It can be nature. It can be so many different things that the person journeys through, physically does, and it takes them out of themselves. And it shows them that other there, that other possibility of another way of living life that was never considered before. And then the first possibility of not snapping out of it, but working out of it, finally is realized. It wasn't there before. But living life well, living life on these terms, living life so that the unseen things start to become as real as the seen things, parts the curtain, even just for a moment. And once you've seen it, once you've seen that far country, you, know, you can't unsee it. It's there. You know it's there. And you know there's a place that you can go. Now for me, at this point in my life, the depression is still there. It's always there. It's always kind of back in the, in the wings someplace. And I can feel it when it starts to come in. But because of this journey I've taken, because of what it's shown me of who our Father is, who this God of my understanding is, I know what to do. And most of the time I can head it off at the pass. And if it does overtake me, it's usually just for a few hours or a few days. Not 20 years anymore. It's a whole different thing. But it was this journey that showed me that there really and truly is a love at the base of all of this, underneath all of this, that cannot be lost because it can't be gained. It just self-exists. It is the first cause of everything that we see. And once you connect with that, it's yours. No one can tell you about it, and you can't tell anyone else about it, but you know that you know that you know that it's true and it's there. And it gives you the ability to move through and move on. Lenny was on this path. I watched him. He wanted it so bad, he sought me out. He came to these meetings. He came to the studies. He came to Sunday morning. He came and talked to me and he talked to others. And we watched this amazing spiritual progression, especially over the last three years. His shares changed. The way that he spoke, the way, not only the questions he asked, but the way that he asked the questions were showing this progression. Because once you've experienced it yourself, you can hear it in just the word choices in another person. You know where they're coming from, right? You know what I'm talking about. And I saw this in Lenny, and I was so encouraged. But you know, it's just like he ran out of runway. He just ran out of time. Maybe it was some perfect storm that hit just this year, and I can lay down a lot of things that I know hit him. 
but he just ran out of space to be able to, if he just had some more time, I keep telling myself, I know he would have turned that corner. But he turned the corner now. Lenny was on this path. He was working this. And I was so proud of him and it was so exciting to watch him do it. This leads to us to the second question. Is suicide forgivable? Now for a good Catholic like me growing up, I was taught, no, of course not. Suicide is a one-way ticket to hell. That's what I was always taught. And I see a few heads going up and down, so I know some of you have also been taught that. Let me be really clear here. No way. No way. I remember people coming up to me sometimes when I would speak. I remember one woman bringing another woman up who was tears and she was carrying her up and she wanted to know about a friend of hers who had converted from Christianity to Judaism so she could marry her husband in that church and then committed suicide. So in her mind, you know, she removed the possibility of of salvation by converting away from Christianity and then killed herself. And no matter how she did the math, it still came up to her friend being in this place of torment. No. No. This God who loves us with this kind of love, what it taught me when I finally started to get the sense of what it was all about is that God's love makes perfect common sense. If I can understand the effects of depression, if I can understand how it takes you out of your right mind, if I can understand how the train can leave the station and you can hit a point of no return, do you think that God can't understand as well? He knows our human condition better than any one of us. He created the human condition. He knows our frailty. He knows these things. Lenny didn't want to die. Lenny wanted the hurting to stop. Those are two very different things. And Lenny felt so guilty about how he was letting people down. He must have told me that a dozen times in the last month. From the moment that he quit one job and we placed him in another, he kept saying how much he thought he was. Lenny probably in his mind somewhere, it was like a soldier falling on a grenade to protect the rest of his troops because he thought that was the only way that he could quit hurting people, quit letting them down. God understands this. Of course he does. We can understand this. If Lenny wanted to be with his God, he is. Period. And I know Lenny was chasing his God for as long as I've known him. I have no doubt. Lenny is fine. It's the rest of us that we need to turn our attention to. The rest of us who are left hurting and left trying to make sense of all of this. That's what we've got to get to. The third question. How do we heal? Where do we go from here? How do we somehow learn to accept that this has happened, that this is still a part of life, that life is still good, that life is still everything that we say we think it is, if God is a loving God? Where do we go from here? This is where we can lean back on Jesus. This is where we can just look at how Jesus processed things, how Jesus lived his life, and how Jesus taught, and find out exactly how we go forward. Take a look in your bulletins or up on the screen at Matthew 5.4. Jesus is teaching us here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now think about that for a second. Think about what you think about mourning. It's not a good thing, is it? 
to mourn. Yet Jesus says you're blessed when you're mourning. And the word that he used for blessed is tobe. Tobe is related to taba, which means good. But in the Aramaic understanding, it's ripeness. It's nurturing. It's being in the right place at the right time. It's in harmony. That was goodness to the ancient Jewish mind. And taba is re- tobe is related to that. It means that you are whole and you are complete and you are enriched. It means congratulations to you. You're fortunate when you're mourning. And the word for mourn there is ibal. And ibal, it can mean to be in turmoil or confusion. It can be weakened by the state of longing for something that has been lost. Longing for something so much that you're weakened and in that state. And to be comforted by Yah means just to unite what is divided within to return from your wandering, to return from the confusion, to come back together again. But the question remains, why are you blessed when you're in this state? Why are you blessed when you're mourning? Here's the thing. If the mourning is real, that means the relationship was real. Imagine a world, imagine a life with nothing to mourn. Imagine that for just a second. You are mourning now. You are grieving now. You are hurting now because the relationship that you had with Lenny was real. Real. And the reason that you have the grief in the first place is the same. We mourn because the relationship was real. And because the relationship is real, when it's removed, it hurts. And it hurts profoundly. But Jesus says you're blessed when you mourn. Do you remember that one of the last scenes in the last Hobbit movie? There's a female elf who's crying over her dead uh, dwarf that she fell in love with. And, and she's, she's crying over his body and just weeping and sobbing. And she says, why does it hurt so bad? If this is love, take it from me. I don't want it. <laughs> why does it hurt so bad? And her king tells, you, tells her, because it was real. If you're hurting now, it's because your love was real. If you're hurting now, it's because your connection was real and you're blessed, you're enriched, you're whole. Because you're connected. You can only hurt when you've connected with someone. To connect with someone is to open up, to be vulnerable, to drop your shields. That means you can get hurt. And when someone is taken from us, we get hurt. But the fact that we are connected and connectable is the comfort that we seek. That's what Jesus is talking about. These things aren't separated in time. The fact that we have become a connectable people, willing to be vulnerable, willing to be open to one another, willing to be hurtable with one another, is the comfort that we seek. And you will see it. You'll see it here This morning, after we're done, you're going to see people hugging each other. You're going to see people crying on each other's shoulders. And when we have the memorial service for Lenny, you'll see it again. But that's the comfort. That's the connection. And as long as we're not afraid to connect, as long as we're not afraid to move into another person's space and to let them into ours, we're going to be fine. Because we can mourn. Jesus takes it a step further. He lives this. He just doesn't teach it. Take a look at John 11. One, the famous story of Lazarus. 
Let me just read it really quickly here, but start to get a sense of what's going on. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, then he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already, he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Skip to verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes. Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she said, said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, Teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to meet him. And therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and he saw the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. But as you read this story, the question that is most obvious to me is not the one we usually ask of this passage. We're usually focused on the miracle. We're focused on the raising of the dead. But the question to me that just is screaming off the page is why did Jesus weep? Everything in here. He stays two days longer where he is when he hears that his friend is sick. And when Mary comes to him, he says, your brother isn't going to stay dead. He's going to rise. And Mary comes to him and says the same thing. But he weeps, knowing that he was going to be led to the tomb, apparently, for he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would he weep? Because Jesus lived what he taught. Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus was presence incarnate. Jesus was unity in body, in human form. Everywhere he went, he was completely immersed, completely connected. When the scriptures say he was without sin, that's what it means. He was completely connected, completely present. If he could not feel Mary's pain at that moment and feel her tears, it's because he wasn't there. And he was. It doesn't matter what's going to happen in the next moment. This moment is the moment of mourning. This is the moment of connection. This is the moment of being one with the pain. And Jesus was there. He was connected. All this build up to focus us, I think, on that essential piece that Jesus was always present 
showing us that this is our way through. This is our way to the Father, the only way to the Father, the way to healing, the way to salvation, the way to everything that we're looking for in terms of deliverance, the way through depression, the way through grief to healing and comfort is connection. But even connection to the pain. We have to be willing to be connected to the painful moments in order to learn this lesson in order to find the healing and the connection that we're looking for. It's the only way it works, is what Jesus is telling us. Not being afraid to embrace pain is really the only way that we can embrace life. Living life fully, living life abundantly, is embracing all that life has to give. Just like we were talking about community and family. You either embrace it all, or you're not in the family. You cannot pick and choose. Do you want to be immersed in life? Do you want to know what this life is about? Do you want to break through the veneer and really find the meaning and purpose in what we're doing here day after day? Then you have to embrace it fully with everything it is and feel deeply what life brings. And the pain that we feel right now will pass. It will be replaced by new pain because that's the way life works. It's okay, because in between are going to be these times of joy and connection. And eventually, Jesus says, living in kingdom is realizing that it's all one thing. It's just this eternal moment that we're living through. I wanted to read to you part of a poem by Khalil Gibran on death that I just think is beautiful and speaks to this so eloquently and so in sync with what Jesus is saying here. Then Almitra spoke, saying, We would ask now of death. And he said, This is the prophet speaking. And he, the prophet, said, You would know the secret of death, but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life? The owl whose night-bound eyes are blind unto the day cannot unveil the mystery of light. If you would indeed behold the spirit of death, open your heart wide unto the body of life. For life and death are one even as the river and the sea are one. In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. And like the seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate to eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd when he stands before the king, whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor, Is the sheared not joyful beneath his trembling that he shall wear the mark of the king? Yet is he not more mindful of his trembling? For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then you shall truly dance. The fear of death, you see, is really the fear of life. Not having lived real connection that shows and leads us into the experience of how much we are actually loved 
until we know that, the depth of that love, the absolute quality of that love, life is going to be too fearful to open up and be vulnerable and be connected and we won't find the comfort from our grief and our depression and our addictions and everything else that hits us. So how do we move forward? You see, this is the beautiful irony of Lenny's life. How do we move forward? Right now, the pain that we're feeling, the grief that we're feeling, was caused by Lenny. He brought us to this place. And the beautiful irony is, he is the one who is showing us how to go forward. Do you see that? His laughter, his sense of humor, his presence, his simply showing up time after time, regardless of how he must have felt inside, we didn't see it because he was still Lenny. He was still laughing. He was still connecting. He was still extending himself, even in the face of his pain. Lenny's connection, even his dogs, showing us the way that we are supposed to move through this. His devotion to those dogs, his love for those dogs, his love for all of us. Lenny is showing us this is the way through even the grief of his own passing. He can teach us still. He is showing us this beautiful way to live life in connection with each other, not inside his own head. He'd be the first one to tell you that was a bad neighborhood, right? But the way that he lived is our way through, our way to do this. This is how we do it. As Lenny lived among us. I feel the grief right now that I know most of you feel. But I'll tell you what, what I feel more than grief right now is gratitude and the privilege of having Lenny in my life for these last seven years. And I wouldn't trade that grief for anything. Anything. I want to read one last thing to you because it just speaks. This is from Tecumseh, the famous Shawnee chief. So live your life that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Love your life. Perfect your life. Beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and of service to your people. Show respect to all people, but grovel to none. When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the light, for your life, for your strength. Give thanks for your food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. When it comes your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. God bless you, Lenny. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Lenny. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his example, but mostly just for his friendship. For every tiny little thing that he did that now seems so precious. Thank you for showing through him what we can do ourselves, how we can connect with you even in the midst of our own pain and insecurity and just general craziness. Father, we are flawed and we are scared and we are broken, but you know that. 
Thank you for understanding. Thank you for being love itself, unchangeable, immutable, self-existent, so that all we have to do is turn and face you and we always get the full, full measure of who you are. We love Lenny and we miss him, but we know that he is with you. Draw all of us, continue to draw us. We know we'll see Lenny again, but in the meantime, we want to fully live this life, connected in your presence, in your spirit, and with each other. Thank you for loving us the way you do, Lord. Help us never to forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.